The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Tonight we will answer some of our viewer questions that we have received from the email address and the Facebook group and other means. So we'll dive right in, Father, and this first question comes from a viewer who would like to know if you believe that subliminal messages exist in rock music and if so, what are the effects of listening to this music? I do believe there are subliminal messages. Uh, I mean, the, the marketing uh, marketing field right, is, is, is full of sending messages to people and trying to induce people to do certain things, to buy certain things, and uh, so on. And I believe there's been a lot of psychological um, uh, inv investigation and psychological manipulation that has come about. Sigmund Freud is a very f famous name involved in all of this with the subconscious and so on. But um, actually, his, uh, his nephew, I think, actually popularized his writings here in the United States of America, uh, was very much involved in the initial uh, field of marketing, which involved psychologically influencing, manipulating people. Uh, it can be honest, it can be dishonest, and it can be honest insofar as it uh, <clears throat> tries to appeal to what people really need and what, what they should have. It can be dishonest if it, if it tries to induce people to do things that they would not uh, do reasonably and, uh, and rightly. Um, so, uh, yes, I do believe that... Um, Rock music is a, is a vehicle for these uh, subliminal messages. I do believe there is such a thing as backward masking. I've tried that and actually discovered that uh, there are backward masked messages in the music. <clears throat> One could argue what effect that has on the brain. But the fact is there are those who think that the uh, brain is very susceptible to these messages. <clears throat> in fact, there's, there's almost an entire movie science devoted to, um, uh, you know, spotting, uh, identifying, unraveling the meaning of uh, just subliminal messages in Disney movies. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. And in fact, some of them clearly uh, include uh, very subtle hidden messages which are very immoral. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I, I think we're under bombardment these days with these subliminal messages from very unscrupulous people who are trying to sell us everything from toothpaste to uh, to to very immoral behavior, mm -hmm. and then pushing that in these messages. And Father, what about the idea that um, you, you'll often hear the argument that as long as the lyrics are okay, as long as there's nothing immoral contained in the lyrics, then the music is okay. Is it possible just for the music itself? to be immoral, to, to convey some kind of a moral oh, yeah. tone? Oh, how, definitely. How, tone, how, yeah. how is that possible? 
Well, uh, music is uh, something that affects us on all levels. Right? It affects us on the intellectual level, the emotional level, the spiritual level, the Gregorian chant. You know? But it can also affect us on what I guess they would call the gut level, you know, the, the, the level of the passions. And um, modern music really goes straight for the, for the gut, goes straight for the passions. And, um, you know, if you, if you were to listen to Gregorian chant, there is um, emphasis on the, the words, the message, the spiritual, spiritual message there. It's very ethereal, okay? But very little to affect the body, to get the body moving, see? But you get the, the modern music, which goes to the other extreme, which simply rants over and over and over and over and over again the same thing, the same few words, right? Shouted, screamed at the top of one's lungs, and uh, the driving beat. It is, it is really meant to affect one on the, on the physical and the, and the level of passions, especially in terms of, of anger and lust. Those are the two things that that uh, the modern uh, rock music and all, I mean, they've gone beyond rock. Now they have, you know, so many other spe species of, um, of, of music descended from rock. But the one thing is um, they all have in common, and that is, it, it, is a, it grabs the passions and drives the passions. And that's what people want these days. You know? um, at the expense of the soul. In fact, you could, you could analyze the elements that go into music. I mean, you could say, well, okay, there's the formal element, there's the material element. And the formal element consists of um, um, that way, the melody, right? Harmony, right? Uh, even the timbre of the music, the, uh, even the timbre of the instruments, you know? Uh, two instruments can play the same note, but the sound is so different you can readily identify the difference between a trump, a trumpet playing an A flat, and a uh, and a uh, guitar playing an A flat. The, the, the overtones, the timbre of the of the note is very different, and um, you get to the um, the material element, mostly represented by the beat, by the rhythm. You know? okay. And the higher the music, uh, the more it, it appeals to the formal and the spiritual, and the best that is in us. The lower the music, the more it appeals to the material, emphasizes the material, and appeals to the lowest that is in us. And the lowest that is in us is what makes us like mere animals. Mm -hmm. Angers, um, and uh, lust, and so on, that reduces us to the level of an animal, or even below the level of an animal. Um, and one have to say that modern music really is very corrupt. In fact, modern music basically is on the level with banging garbage candles together, except for the fact that you you have the lyrics that are that are pushing. I mean, you could take bar garbage candles and beat them in a rhythmic tone, right? Mm -hmm. um, syncopated rhythm, and get people moving and dancing to sure. banging garbage candles together. And you could be singing the most immoral lyrics, right? But even if you were singing, um, you know, something that in itself is not wrong, even if you're singing something in itself that it might be uh, uh, even a spiritual message, you know, you, you, uh, but you could be degrading it by the sound that you're making, which 
it has this physical gut effect on us to reach for the passions and make us uh, react, act and react on the basis of the passions, primarily. It's immoral, but very effective. This is what, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar interest every year. This is what people are buying into. This is what they want. So, um, you know, sometimes you have young people who like this, this kind of, uh, uh, you'd call it jungle music, because it, it is on the level of savagery, okay? And it often, uh, it begins with savagery, it ends with savagery, very often, very, very, uh, very much um, attuned to people who live by their anger and by their lust. This is what drives their lives, Okay. And um, they may say, well, I like it. You can't argue that. They like it. They know they like it. You can't say, oh, no, you don't. You can argue that you shouldn't like it. You can, you can argue uh, you know, on a philosophical, rational level that it's not good. But it's like trying to convince somebody that you know, smoking marijuana is not good for them either. If they like it, they like it. And that's what they live for. That is the sum and substance of their decision-making powers. They like it. It's good, okay? <coughs> but at the same time, I mean, this is what the training is. They go off to college. They're being taught by a bunch of solipsistic, solipsistic professors who, who basically convey the idea, you're the only one that exists. You're the only one that matters. Mm -hmm. Nobody else matters. And as, for, as far as that's concerned, uh, you're the only one that, that exists as far as you're concerned. And uh, others exist only insofar as you approve of them, and you let them into your own little world, and they are good if they make you happy and feel good about yourself, and they are bad if they make you sad and feel bad about yourself. And uh, you are the god of your own little world. This is what we call existentialism, but this is the philosophy that is rampant and dominant these days. And this is what the young people are getting. This is what they're, even from traditional Catholic families, they go to college, they get, uh, they get infected with this stuff, and they come up, they come out thinking like uh, radical leftist who um, basically have sold their soul to mm -hmm. this. Uh, uh, and for them, again, the, uh, the ultimate um, arbiter of what is good and bad for them is what makes what they like and what they don't like. Mm -hmm. What appeals to them, what doesn't appeal to them, makes them happy, what makes them sad. Yeah. Um, there, there's no principle left in them except for their own will and their own passions. Modern music is... Um, is it basically embodies that message, right? Even regardless, even with, with or without lyrics. In fact, uh, you, you might even make an argument that modern classical music is even worse than rock music. Because whereas rock music goes, makes no pretense about it, it goes straight for the passions, right? Straight for the animalistic appetites in human being. Uh, often this modern so-called classical music is uh, is anti-rational. Um, one of our own uh, gentlemen here, uh, who was actually a carpenter by trade at the time, he was in the rehab business, went to the concert with some of our kids from the school, and they played some good music, but then they played some of this modern stuff. He came away and he made the comment, that the modern piece sounded like a bunch of instruments bickering with each other. And you, you just imagine what that sounds like. 
<laughs> and you know, that is irrational. That is not irrational. That is anti-rational. It's very jarring to the reason. In some ways, I think that is even worse than the uh, than rock music. Mm. It's just pure appetites, right. pure passions. Anyway, yeah, that, that's an interesting, interesting discussion. There's a whole study on this. Sure. Actually, our, our organist at uh, Immaculate Conception um, is a doctor in, in music. Mm -hmm. um, has some very interesting insights on this, and it, it might be interesting to interview him sometime sure. about it. I think I think he, in fact, he spoke on on this subject. Actually, I think it was more on the level of the the Novus Ordo music. Mm -hmm. The music that is chosen to accompany the Novus Ordo, and he's, he's analyzed it. He spoke at the Roman Catholic Forum a number of years ago about it. And his talk was very enlightening, very popular, and many people wanted copies of that, uh, of that lecture that he gave. Hmm. So we might want to follow up with right. him on that. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, for the meantime, though, Father, I'd like to, to move on to, uh, to one of our next questions. Um, we have one here from a viewer who would like to know, should we as Catholics kiss the pictures of the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary? We certainly can. You know, it's, it's simply a matter of devotion. You know, if you had a loved one here on earth, or, or even a, a loved one who is deceased, and you, because you love them, you know, it gives you a sense of closeness to them, and, and it's a, like a sense of reverence that you kiss the picture. Mm -hmm. You're obviously not kissing pixels on a piece of paper. You're, 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 it's the person you're, you're showing your love and devotion for. Well, kissing a holy card or a medal, you're just showing a devotion, reverence for a saint. Because they are a saint. Because they love God. And they serve God so, so selflessly. That is something we should revere. So there's nothing wrong with it. Right. It just seems like a, an easily misunderstood idea from, from those who don't, who don't. Well, those who come at it with a certain prejudice, mm -hmm. you know, and don't really want to understand what's happening, yeah, they could misinterpret that. But right. there's such a thing as uh, genuine scandal where somebody sets a bad example and leads one to understand badly. And there's such a thing as pharisaical scandal, and that is people who, who take scandal uh, where there really is none. Right. I mean, even our Lord, um, even our Lord was subject to that Pharisaical scandal where the, the Pharisees were scandalized by what he said. I mean, at the Sanhedrin, the, the, when our Lord said, uh, Thou sayest it, I am a king. Mm -hmm. Or when, uh, um, when they, they accused him of saying he was the Son of God. And uh, our Lord ratified what they said, and they tore their garments in outrage because they were so scandalized. That's pharisaical scandal. Okay. Our Lord wasn't guilty of giving scandal. They were guilty of taking it because of their malice toward him. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, moving on, Father. Uh, another viewer would like to know, if State of Vicantus bishops can hold a conclave to elect a pope, and if not, why not? Well, you use the word can. I guess you're referring to a physical power. Uh, State of Vicantus bishops could... Uh, do such things if they, uh, they, they, frankly, if they think they have the power to decide dogmatically for everybody in the world <laughs> whether or point. not this person is the Pope or not, they're already basically acting as though they were not only the magisterium, mm -hmm. but kind of the super magisterium, as though each one of them was a Pope mm -hmm. already. So, what's to stop them from coalescing into this? Um, 
conclave, if they want to call it that, and electing uh, a pope for themselves, right? Um, it would be a sham and a fraud. All right. Um, they do not have that power. Um, so, uh, could they do it physically? Yes. Could they do it morally? No. Mm-hmm. It would be wrong for them to, to attempt that. And um, have there been some who've actually tried to pull that off? Actually, there have been some notoriously um, misdirected efforts at that <laughs> that uh, almost and uh, kind of laughing stock. But it, it's nothing to laugh at. It's a very serious error. Um, but they don't have the authority to do it. And... Um, uh, they uh, could not legitimately do that. Mm-hmm. If they tried to do it, they would just further divide the uh, traditional Catholic people right. and into into more, you know, warring clans, mm-hmm. as it were, right. uh, arguing about whether they had the power to do it, or whether they, they elected the right person. They would argue among themselves. <clears throat> Some would break off and go elect somebody else. And uh, it would be, I believe, a, a uh, another one of the devil's tactics to just divide and conquer and mm-hmm. try to mislead the traditional Catholics. Mm-hmm. So I hope and pray that uh, some of the more notorious uh, and dogmatic Sainte Countess don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, they already are setting the stage in the way they conduct themselves and the way they talk to, to, to go that way. So it wouldn't surprise me if they, if they attempted it anyway. Wow. Okay. Uh, Father, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your answer to this one. We have a viewer who writes in and says, Father, you spoke in one of your previous segments regarding NFP, natural family planning, and how a couple can go to their priest for him to discern whether NFP can be practiced based on the couple's situation. Uh, Francis has suggested that a similar method uh, can be employed by a pastor to discern whether a remarried divorcee can receive the sacraments, primarily the Eucharist, based on their irregular situation. How can you say that the discernment of the moral law can be applied to a couple regarding NFP, but not for the situation of the divorced and remarried couple? I'm sorry, Tom, but that makes no sense at all. I mean, (laughs) to compare these two things, right? Mm -hmm. Where the church has said traditionally that national uh, natural family planning <clears throat> can be justified right, mm-hmm. by certain external circumstances, right, where the couple has already given life and so on, and uh, that they they can therefore do something natural, mm-hmm. okay, um, but still accept God's will, whatever He sends, right, and and to somehow correlate that. To somebody who has betrayed his marriage vows, is that actually living now in adultery with with someone to whom he's not married, and basically abandoned the one to whom he is married and his marriage vows, and to say that giving permission for to practice national family planning under these circumstances is the equivalent of deciding whether or not somebody who's living in open adultery can receive uh, the sacraments. Um, th- this is so absurd that it, it, it's almost um, 
you know, re- responding to it is, is kind of giving <laughs> giving some kind of credence to the absurdity. Mm-hmm. You know, there simply is no parallel where right. you know they're not only talking about apples and oranges. I mean, they're basically talking about the difference between rocks and aardvarks. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not even in the same species, the same genus, the same family, the same kingdom. <laughs> they're just totally different questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church has always and everywhere condemned adultery as a mortal sin. Search the pages of sacred scripture. Uh, search the, the pages of the church's pronouncements. Uh, adultery is a very grave mortal sin. Okay. Uh, always and everywhere condemned. <clears throat> okay, natural family planning, not so. You know, do they not see the the difference there? Does that does the difference not matter to them? I guess if it doesn't matter to them, there's nothing I can say anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, this is not using the methodology of Francis in chapter eight of Amoris Laetitia. And uh, to to again try to make some kind of parallel there is so absurd. Uh, I would just say um, that, that, that it's absurd. Right. It and, doesn't make any sense at all. In this viewer's defense, though, I believe it was more like a hypothetical question. I don't believe it was. Oh, a, okay. A, but okay. It's just just for uh, for that. For the, for the sake well, p- pathetic, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but uh, I, I, I really don't. Uh, maybe they're thinking. Some people are thinking that, but I don't. Yeah. I, I have not encountered okay. that uh, okay. ever before. Okay. Uh, so I don't know who's really thinking that. If this person is just trying to be helpful, maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I, I've never known anybody who even suggested. Okay. Um, that the church's uh, approval of using natural family planning under a set of very divine, well-defined circumstances um, it is anyway correlated to uh, Francis' idea of allowing people living in open adultery to open, also openly and, uh, and publicly receive the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the most the church has ever done in this regard is to uh, have, let's say, a, a couple who are living in adultery, um, who want to uh, save their souls. The most the church has ever conceded, to my knowledge, is that if they do have children that are theirs mutually, even though they're not husband and wife, they're still mother and father, to these little children who, want, who need their mother and father, have a right to their mother and father, that they would allow the couple to continue uh, to live with those children under the same roof. But they would have to uh, uh, swear that they would not cohabitate, that they would have purely a brother and sister relationship, and that they would have separate quarters, and they would not uh, share the same bed, share the same bedroom, share the same living rooms. Uh, if they lived under the same roof, the roof is the only thing that they could, they could share. Uh, otherwise, they'd have to have two completely separate lives, and um, and even and then could come re- to receive the sacraments uh, privately. Uh, the only way around that would be if if no one knows that they are living in adultery. Or it's it's uh, clandestine that they are, and very few people know it. And they're very discreet. 
but they also know that they're living as brother and sister, and they're being faithful to that. Uh, so they would not be scandalized to see them receiving. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, if, if, you, if you saw two people who were living together and they never received the sacrament, uh, people would begin asking questions, why aren't they receiving the sacraments? And that could give scandal. Mm -hmm. But if it were widely known that they were, li that they were actually uh, living together and not married, uh, the most the church would ever concede is that they could s receive the sacraments privately, um, only privately, but only on the condition that they were not living in adultery. They'd have, no matter how you look at it, the church always required they stop the adultery. Right? And if they were not faithful to that, then there's no way the church would uh, countenance this. Right. <laughs> even if it were clandestine, even if it were not known. Uh, in public, uh, generally that they were not married that you're legitimately married to each other right. so the church was very very strong on this I mean how would you expect the church who, who uh, opposed Henry VIII right, and uh, <clears throat> had so many martyrs give their blood because they would not uh, approve the marriage and not approve the, uh, the annulment of Henry VIII how would you expect the church to stand so firm on the, uh, so firmly on the sanctity of the marriage vows to begin to fudge mm -hmm. on matters like that, ever, right. anywhere, <clears throat> is outrageous. Mm -hmm. So, um, And it, 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 seem, it seems remarkable, the, the difference between how the traditional church would, would treat matters like this and take all these precautions mm -hmm. that, that you noted and all of that, and even, mm -hmm. like you uh, mentioned, Henry VIII and all of that, it basically lost the, the entire country <clears throat> there just over this one and it's just if you compare that with with the attitude mm -hmm. that prevails in the Nova Sorda Church today, it's it's night night and day difference. But uh, definitely, we we have a, a related question, Father, concerning uh, natural family planning. Where one of our viewers writes in, and he provides a quote from Pope Pius XI, uh, given in 1930. And uh, if I could just read this this quote from Pius XI here, where he says. Since, therefore, the conjugal act is destined primarily by nature for the begetting of children, those who, in exercising it, deliberately frustrate its natural powers and propose sin against nature and commit a deed which is shameful and intrinsically vicious. Uh, furthermore, this viewer writes in and says, NFP is used to have relations without having a baby, just like condoms and birth control pills. Therefore, it, it, it goes against the purpose of the marital act even if it doesn't frustrate the natural powers. It can't be okay under grave circumstances, for the quote from Pius XI says it is intrinsically vicious. Intrinsically evil actions, for example, uh, natural family planning and abortion can't have a justification. How he's wrong. He's just totally wrong. Okay, why? Doesn't know what he's talking about. Because when Pope Pius XI is writing that, he's not writing about natural family planning. Okay. He's, he's writing about taking uh, the necessary actions um, to thwart, to actually engage in, in marital intercourse, marital relations, but to take artificial means to, uh, to thwart the conception of a child. He's not talking about just limiting the, the natural act that a husband and wife uh, do, which is God designed that way. He's not talking about just limiting it to the periods when they ordinarily could not receive, uh, conceive. But they leave that to God's will to decide whether or not they do, in fact, conceive. 
that is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the intrinsically immoral acts of, our natu- of unnatural and artificial uh, con- contraception. Is what he's talking about. Okay, so a natu- and that's what the church has always understood him to be referring to. Okay. The church has never interpreted it the way this man does. So would Pius, or woman, for that would, would, would Pope Pius XI, would he agree with Pope Pius XII's teaching? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there is nothing intrinsically immoral about uh, a couple limiting their uh, marital act as long as they complete the act as God designed it according to nature. Right. Uh, there's nothing intrinsically immoral about that, intrinsically evil about it. Um it just seems that in this viewer's eyes that natural family planning is practiced for the sole purpose of preventing the conception of children. And Pope Pius XI says that it is intrinsically vicious to go if, if the individual cannot distinguish between what is, uh, what is using a, something natural that God gave us, right, the natural rhythm mm-hmm. of fertility, from actually using chemicals and uh, and mechanical devices and other other um, you know interruptions and so on to uh, ha- have the pleasure but without uh, to to deliberately thwart by artificial human means um, the conception of a child if they can't make the distinction then you know. Uh, there's nothing that I can do to get that point across to them to make them understand that. But the fact is, regardless of what I'm telling you, the church yourself has understood this differently. Um, uh, but were Pope Pius XII, were his statements infallible? Could he, could he have been wrong on the matter? One can argue all you want about that, but the fact is, it's not up to you to decide that. He, well, I think he could be infallible, so I'm, I'm infallible, so I'm saying I'm infallible that he is fallible. You know, I'm sorry, but that's not how Catholics think. Okay. And um, you know, one could one could go on and argue uh, that uh, when the Church allowed, I guess it was Henry and Cunegunda, to make their marriage vows, because the the primary essential purpose of the marriage vows is to bring children to the world, but that they mutually agreed they wouldn't use their marriage rights because they wanted to live the religious life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they were thwarting the purpose right. of their marriage vows, and therefore they were committing mortal sin, and that saint, these two saints, actually went to hell. You that's, know? A, that's a good point. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, they don't really know what they're talking about. They're not making the necessary distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are people who think the harder line you can draw, the better you are. And the more true it must be, and so if you can outdo each other in in uh, in being uh, more extreme, you know, that you must be right. That this is like one upmanship. How far can you go to condemn more things and more people? You know, mm-hmm. I think the the uh, you know those who condemn the idea of baptism of blood and baptism of desire are, are in that category that they love the idea that we're stricter than everybody else we restrict salvation more than anybody else so we must be right and uh, everybody else is liberal compared to us it's uh it's it's interesting that you had mentioned that father because it seems like this this viewer he he pulled these questions from the the diamond brothers oh okay okay <laughs> okay <laughs> Who, okay. who, who practice that makes, the, makes perfect sense. Right, that. That, who, have, who have the issues with the baptism <laughs> yeah. of desire and blood. But his, his final uh, final hurdle here that he poses is, 
He asks, if NFP is not evil, then why can't it be used for any reason whatsoever? There are lots of things that you just can't use for you know any reason whatsoever. For for example, for you to use narcotics for um, you know for for no no reason other than the fact that you like to use narcotics, I mean, that that would be evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not evil to use it for some uh, proportionate good. I mean. The fact is, you, you, you just can't go around doping yourself up, but you could, for a major operation, legitimately use that. I mean, right. you know, this is just normal. But Although maybe they might say, nope, nope, you can't do it. You have to bite the bullet um, and, and suffer all the pain of major surgery, and it's forbidden for you to take any narcotic to deaden the pain because that is, you know, uh, taking some kind of drug. Mm-hmm. But uh, they would be against taking a sleeping pill, I suppose, you know, uh, that helps to relax you and push you to sleep. Um, you know, the example, an example that we heard <coughs> from uh, Monsieur Le Chaman Berton, who was a canon of St. Bernard, canon of St. Bernard. Uh, they are the, uh, the, the religious who would ski the Alps looking for fallen travelers, you know. And yes, they really did have the St. Bernard dogs, and they really did have the casks, the kegs under the chins, and all that. <clears throat> One day, um, a couple of young, uh, young, some of the juniors that probably not ordained yet, you know, they were probably just uh, still <clears throat> in temporary vows, uh, came back from the village down in the valley below to report that, um, I guess they'd been sent down for, down for supplies and they came back, as I recall, and reported that there was a sickness going on in the valley and people were dying from uh, very contagious illness. <clears throat> and the abbot told them that you probably brought that with you. You probably brought that back to the community with you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the abbot basically ordered everyone to uh, drink enough of their own liqueur that they made, right? Let's face it, I mean, it was for medicinal purposes in those days. They didn't have a lot of medicines, but this was one thing that they could take that really was medicinal, you know? <clears throat> to drink enough of it so that their the uh, their bloodstream would uh, get enough alcohol in it that would protect them against the disease. This is how he thought. There were two members of the community that were too delicate. Their health was, they couldn't take this. Their stomachs couldn't take it. They died of the disease. And all the others survived. You know? And I'm sure that there are those who would say, oh, they all committed mortal sin in, in doing that to protect themselves against the, uh, the disease. But the fact is, again, you know, the church knows what she's doing. And she tells you that there can be a proportionate reason where such that under certain circumstances something is not immoral to use that for no good reason you know it were used for no good reason that would be immoral to do the church has always made this distinction though <clears throat> if there are people who can't understand that well <clears throat> you try to explain it to them but you, you you just don't give them any credence just because they don't get it right. Right. Um, but this is this is the Catholic understanding and the Catholic way of, mm-hmm. way of thinking, yeah. understanding morality. Sure, that's that's a good story. I'd never heard that one before. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Um, well, I thought it was interesting. When I, heard it. <laughs> I think so too. I like to to totally switch gears here, Father, and ask 
how should Catholics deal with Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh, we, we see them um, all the time, it seems, uh, ma- making the rounds around the neighborhood, knocking on all the doors, passing out their leaflets. What, what, should, what should the Catholic do when they open the door to a Jehovah's Witness with all their leaflets ready? Catholics should know his faith. A Catholic should know his faith and, and be able to respond to these things. But uh, remember, they're coming with a message that is crafted, okay? Mm-hmm. So the Catholic has to understand that they're not coming with the objective message. They're coming with uh, basically a case. They're coming to make a case like a, a prosecuting or a defense attorney. I mean, nobody who has a sense of rightness, uh, fairness, um, a desire for the truth, listens only to the prosecution, listens only to the defense, right? And when you have, uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door, you know, they have been schooled in a case which is entirely one-sided. You, as a Catholic, are supposed to know, you know, um, you're supposed to know what the truth is, um, and if, if you know, and if you've done your homework, um, you could actually tell them, turn in your Bible to this chapter. Turn to the, well, they call it the book of Revelation. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7. Read that. Read it out loud. You know? Your own Bible. Go ahead. I suppose they have the King James Version. I, suppose. I don't know. I would expect that they have the King James. <clears throat> and let them start reading there. You know, are, are, the, are these the folks who believe that 144,000 wind up in heaven? You know, and uh, um, the rest are here in a paradise here on earth. I mean, it's ever they're telling everybody. And uh, when they start reading, uh, they go through that passage that talks about the 144,000 who are sealed with the mark of the Son of Man here. But they're sealed here on earth, and they're from the tribes of the Jews. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 signed. Uh, of, the, of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 signed. This is what it actually says. And that's what it mounts up to 144,000 people. The 12,000 signed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, excluding the tribe of Dan, which disappeared from history. And, uh, some people claim that's actually where the Irish people descended from. But the fact is that there are 12 tribes named in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, <coughs> And they are uh, listed as 12,000 signed before God strikes the earth, right? And uh, that's where you, they get your 144,000. They're not in heaven, they're on earth, okay? <clears throat> but then you keep reading, or you tell your, your Seventh-day, uh, your Jehovah's Witnesses to keep reading, and they come to the part of the souls that are in heaven, and they say, Then I saw a vast multitude which no man could number, of every tribe and people and tongue and so on, <clears throat> standing before the throne and praising God in heaven. A vast number which no man could number, not 144,000. Let them actually read it, you know, without the sound of the, the propaganda of a mentor in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, kingdom hall, you know. Uh, telling them what it means. Let them actually read it and understand what it actually says. And if they're willing to accept that, willing to face it, uh, they'll see right away that their message is entirely wrong. It's crafted wrong. Um, The problem is getting past the fear they have of kind of crossing their 
their uh, leaders, you know, their, their mentors, because they're told, you know, if you find that they're coming at you and they don't have, you don't have answers for what they're telling you, then you know, they leave, throw it in reverse and get away, you know, because you're being tempted now you know, to turn against the message. The point is, if you're if you're realizing the message is wrong, and you have the very words of sacred, the scriptures that they they've given them in front of them, and you can see that it it uh, directly contradicts what they've been told, <clears throat> then you'd hope that they'd have the honesty left mm -hmm. to say, okay, well, I need I need to know this, mm -hmm. unless they are. Can, entirely given over to the control of these people. Mm -hmm. So there, there are ways to, uh, to approach it. You, you don't take their King James Bibles and smack them over the head with it. <laughs> but, you know, to, uh, in a very kindly fashion, just tell them, you know, you're, you're, you're making a very big mistake. Just say, you know, take their own Bible, open up to Apocalypse, uh, Revelations, as they call it, chapter mm -hmm. 7, and just start reading. And just read it as though they're actually reading what's on the page, not what they've been told is there, but what it actually says. And they will come to understand that uh, what's there is not what they have been taught, led to believe. It's what you, as a Catholic, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, that this whole message of the 144,000 being saved, it's, it's, it's not what sacred scripture says. Right, right. That's interesting, Father. It, it seems like uh, there are, there are a lot of other things too, but that's the first thing that yeah, comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. I, it seems that uh, one of our, our viewers mentioned this that, that since Jehovah's Witnesses always always have have these little leaflets ready, that it would it would make sense to have some kind of uh, Catholic um, alternative to that and, and be ready to give them something like that. Right. Uh, well, I mean, there is the incredible creed of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a, pan, a, a little uh, booklet that was produced by Tan. Okay. books back when. I don't know if it's still available or not. Hmm. But it spells it out pretty well, I think. Okay. One could obtain that. Uh, the Incredible Creed of the Jehovah's Witnesses is what I think the title was. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, that might be something good to, to, to look into. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we'll go ahead and stop there, Father. We, we've still got uh, quite a list of questions left, but uh, mm. we'll have to uh, have to get together again and do another program on this. So, no, that'd be fun. Too. Yeah, sure. but I, I'd like to thank, thank you for being here tonight and answering all these questions. Well, you're sure. welcome. I, I, even though, uh, you know, I might have uh, used the word absurd to refer to some questions there. I, I didn't mean to offend anybody sure. so much. But um, I, uh, I'm glad that they, they sent the questions in. Um, uh, I, I will take your interpretation that they're actually proposing these for the sake of others who might be <laughs> looking for answers and might be thinking these things. Okay. Um, but in any case, uh, it's, it's, it's appreciated. You are appreciated. Okay. You're being here and also the questions. Uh, um, uh, they're they're appreciated too, so, and I know we have quite a few others too. I think some might have responded to the um, the um, program we did on the Took Bishops, right? And perhaps the next time we meet, we should address those. Definitely sounds like a good idea to me. Uh, I, I would like to thank all of our viewers though for sending in these questions, and definitely keep them coming, and we'll, we'll do our best to to answer them. But in the meantime, I would like to uh, thank you all for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. I'd also ask you all to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. 
to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.